everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm sorry I missed you last Monday, and I apologize for my voice. It's been quite a couple of weeks, if you know what I mean. And if you're a new listener to this podcast, welcome. Please join the other dozen listeners to this podcast. And remember, my voice doesn't always sound like this. A new study came out this week that hopefully will help families affected by autism, especially those that have multiple children with autism. And before I go into it, this isn't about family planning, because if you know me, you know I don't comment on decisions of when, how, and if to have children or expand your family. This is more about being aware, prepared, and mobilized as soon as possible to get the best services you can. So I've proselytized many times about the probability of having another child with autism if you already have a diagnosed child and how you should be alert to the signs and symptoms. There's a 15 times greater chance than those without an older sibling in the family of having a child with autism. Scientists know this because studies look at infant siblings and those are the infants with an older sibling with autism. Because families are in this situation, that is, they have a child with autism and a second, third, or fourth infant, they've participated in research studies to examine the very early signs of autism and even get referred into intervention studies as soon as those signs are observed. The goal is to maximize the potential of interventions to produce meaningful improvements in social skills, communication abilities, sometimes improve cognition, and also reduce harmful behaviors. It isn't about changing from an autism-no-autism diagnosis. So far, the early intervention studies are showing that there's much more of improvement in behavior, but not so much that it necessarily changes that diagnosis. When the first numbers about that 15 times increase in probability came out, clinicians first got the questions of, what if my child is a boy or a girl? Or I don't just have one older child with autism, I have two or three. What should I expect from this infant and what should I be looking for? Now, thanks to the same researchers that discovered that 15 times higher number, science has an answer to that. Published this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association, this one focused on neurologists, an analysis was done of infant siblings when there were two or more older siblings with autism. Those in the analysis had two or more older siblings, and a comparison was made if you had just one older sibling and one other sibling. So those with two or more older siblings with autism were called the multiple incidence families, or multiplex, and those with just one older sibling with autism and one sibling without autism, so they had two siblings but just one had autism, they were called single incidence families. The interest was in trajectory and outcome, and the reason they made these definitions on a multiple incidence family and a single incidence family is that a multiple incidence family can only be defined as one with two existing autism diagnoses. If you followed the kids with one sibling and one with autism, that could be a multiplex or a simplex depending on the outcome, but that's a different family. The single incidence was one with autism and one without autism. So the questions of this study were, 
One, were there differences in the rate of typical, atypical, and autism outcomes between infants from multiplex families versus single incidence families? Two, when and how do developmental trajectories of autism symptoms like cognitive ability and adaptive skills differ in the first months of life in the multiple incidence families and the single incidence families? And three, since most of these kids, about 80% of them, in fact, don't even end up with an autism diagnosis, what are some things that parents should be looking for outside of just autism? So I'll get to the bottom line. What did this study find? First, the children of multiplex families were more than twice as likely to have an infant with an autism outcome as those from those single incidence families. This also applies to the broader spectrum of autism. So while 50% of the children with only one older sibling with autism were typically developing at three years, only 33% of the children with the multiple families with multiple older siblings were typically developing at three years. Now this highlights the first and most important clinical finding of the study, what families need to know. Infants with a strong family history of autism need to be monitored early and often, and they should be referred for early intervention services at the first sign of concern. If this hasn't come across strongly before, I apologize, and I want to say it again. If you already have a child with autism, get your infant examined early and often. Doctors, Do not dismiss the concerns of anyone for that matter, but especially don't dismiss the concerns of parents with an existing child with autism. Now, what about some of those behavioral features of the kids with autism? So just looking at the kids with autism, those from the simplex families actually showed similar levels of cognitive and adaptive abilities early on, like six to 12 months while those of simplex families or just one older sibling actually showed some early lower cognitive scores. Now, by three years, everyone who has autism had some cognitive disabilities or cognitive challenges, but in the single incidence families, they seem to diverge earlier, like at one year of life. In the multiple incidence families, It wasn't until about two years of life when there was a sharp decline on early cognitive and adaptive skills. So this is not a rule by any means, but it's something that parents should look out for. The trajectories are different. If you're a multiple incidence family, don't think that by 12 months, if you haven't seen anything or your child's doing okay, that you have the all clear. Keep your feelers open and keep your eyes open because there may be something that happens around two years. Now, what about those without an autism diagnosis? Remember, most of these kids don't end up with a diagnosis. 20% do, 80% don't. Those without autism actually looked fine in terms of autism symptomatology by their parents before three years of age. I have to say this is somewhat surprising because previous research has showed subclinical autism symptoms in family members of people with autism, like the broader autism phenotype, and have also shown it in these infant siblings, particularly in families with multiple affected individuals. 
Still though, just because an undiagnosed sibling does not have autism, they do of course have higher rates of other issues like ADHD, anxiety, and language issue. Again, we already know this. Infants with a strong family history of autism should be monitored early and often and referred for early intervention at the first sign of developmental concern. Did I say that already? I want to say it again. Now, once they get that diagnosis or are even concerned about that diagnosis, many parents naturally turn to off-the-shelf, easily accessible interventions that don't have wait periods or paperwork to fill out or telephone calls to make. This is my second, this is another thing I want to talk about on this podcast. This is totally natural and totally understandable, but they don't always translate into things that work. Take, for example, restrictive diets or vitamin supplementations, both of which you can do yourself or buy in a pharmacy online. There have been studies here or there that have looked at these types of interventions with pretty much mixed results. And some of these studies also have issues that make scientists doubt the validity of the findings. But this week, researchers across Europe and the United States conducted what is called a meta-analysis of dietary interventions, including vitamin supplementation. The meta-analysis takes a lot of studies that meet, the, that meet the criteria that they're looking for and puts all the data in one pot and then comes up with a bigger answer. In this project, specifically, the meta-analysis only included studies that looked at differences between the placebo and whatever supplement or dietary intervention was studied, so these had to be placebo-controlled trials. They also could include those that were parallel crossover placebo trials or double-blinded crossover randomized clinical trials. These crossover trials is when one group gets the placebo and the other group gets the intervention, then the crossover is when the people who first got the intervention then get the placebo, and then who, those who got the placebo then get the intervention, and then the differences between the responses are calculated. In total, across about 30 studies, there were 800 kids included in these projects. Unfortunately, there were no adults. The meta-analysis revealed that in people with autism, dietary supplementation like th- like vitamin supplementation, omega-3 fatty acids, or other supplementations were more effective than placebo for improving particular symptoms and functions in clinical domains, not autism as a diagnosis, and not even the core symptoms of autism, but things like anxiety, behavioral problems, and impulsivity. I want to point out, even though that they found that there was an effect, the effect sizes or the amount of improvement was very, very small in all of the studies. In fact, that was actually the most remarkable thing. It wasn't that one study showed a huge effect and the rest showed a little effect. It was all of them showed very little effects. Outside scientists have noted of concern that the authors also lumped together different outcome categories, which may not necessarily be helpful and create a false effect. They also lumped together different types of interventions. So they said all vitamin supplementations together. Now, different vitamins work on different biochemical pathways. And so it's unclear how lumping these different types of interventions together would be meaningful. Also, the primary studies, the one that were included in the first place, 
really as a whole did a terrible job at actually describing the people that were involved. Did they have verbal ability? What was their cognitive function? What was even their demographics? Were there boys or girls? There was really no way to look at these variables that might affect outcome. So the effects may have been overestimated or underestimated, and that's a real shame. In other words, here's the thing. There doesn't really seem to be anything inherently dangerous about supplements that show a tiny effect. These include omega-3 supplementation and other vitamins. As I just mentioned, these vitamins were all lumped together, so it's not clear if it's vitamin E, A, C, or D or something else. But they also don't seem to be helping It seems like all kids, regardless of a diagnosis, eat crap, and it's not a bad idea to go to a doctor to determine if these diets are resulting in nutritional insufficiencies. And there's something to be said about vitamins improving general health and wellness. So by all means, take vitamins, but don't overdo them. My advice would be to take a multivitamin and not any ultra high doses of any one particular vitamin. In other words, Save your money for interventions that we know work. Thanks for listening this week. Again, I'm sorry about my voice. Next week, I should be 100% again.